0: very briefly to have an idea how this uh, brain works. It develops from a membrane or group of cells called ectoderm that in the dorsal aspect of the embryo, which is going to be later in the back of the body, makes a formation like a tube called the neural tube. And that neural tube will finally turn into the central nervous system.
1: And that starts as early
0: as 20 days after conception. And the organization of these cells in the shape of a tube, it actually remains until adult. And inside the tube, we will find the fluid called CSF or cerebrospinal fluid. And the sequence of development here during the weeks four and week five uh, we see the tube initially, with some dilated portions, which are called prosencephalon, mesencephalon, rhombencephalon. But notice the sequence, the development sequence that we see here. The prosencephalon will turn into this part, and from three vesicles turn into five vesicles or dilated parts of this tube mesencephalon and metencephalon and myencephalon but let's go to the end to the other side of the graph and see what comes at the end what is the final structure from the prosencephalon we will have the cerebral hemisphere thalamus hypothalamus from the mesencephalon the midbrain and from the rhombencephalon Pons, cerebellum, and medulla oblongata. When well, we see the brain initially in adult, complete, developed form, we see many different parts. But if we go back in the development, now makes sense to think about all these structures coming from a common structure known as the neural tube. That on the sequence, it will start getting dilated parts. And it keeps developing and keeps developing until the very complex anatomy that we have inside the cranial cavity and the spinal cavity. And, of course, below, we continue the spinal cord. Talking about those cavities or the inside of the tube, the inside part of the tube will turn into what we call the ventricular system, which is lined by a simple cuboidal epithelium, which are ependymal cells. We're describing them as part of neurongolia, the ependymal cells here. And in this part, called the ventricles, is where we find the CSF, or cerebrospinal fluid. And this diagram is showing us the structure in blue. They're trying to show the inside part of the, um, of the brain. And the system of cavities called the ventricular system. This is an anterior view. So each cerebral hemisphere has a cavity inside filled with fluid. This, these are called lateral ventricles. In the midline, that's a third ventricle. And in the brain stem, we have the fourth ventricle, which has a a diamond shape. From a lateral view, we can see all these parts. The lateral ventricle, like a C, inverted C, third ventricle, and fourth ventricle at the level of the brain stem and cerebellum. This is hard to figure and see in the models or in the real brains unless we make sections and we are able to see the inside, the cavities of the brain. So let's start with the study of the cerebrum, which is the largest portion of the brain. And this is where complex functions, known as the higher mental functions, reside. Right and left, cerebral hemispheres connected. They are both um, hemispheres connected by a white matter structure called the corpus callosum. And I say, why matter? Because they are made, it's made of axons, axons of neurons connecting both hemispheres. And in the cerebrum, the most uh, um, evident part that we see is a gray matter called the cerebral cortex, which can be clearly seen when we make sections following the different planes coronal, transverse, or sagittal sections. The cerebral cortex is gray matter. And um, what we see is different folds. Each of the ridges is called a gyrus. And uh, the grooves are called sulci or convolutions. There are some of these grooves or fissures which are deep that are the limits or separate different lobes, frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital, and insula. In the books, it usually is easy to see them in models and books because they depict it with different colors. In an actual brain, there's no limits like lines or something that clearly defines some of these lobes, from like the parietal and occipital. It's not a line exactly. It's like a series of grooves that separate them. And from some of these lobes, some areas or regions are important to emphasize. Like, there is a sulcus called the central sulcus that divides frontal and parietal lobes. And it's important because... The two areas associated, I mean, front and the back of this um, sulcus called the central sulcus are two regions called the precentral gyrus and postcentral gyrus. The precentral is in the frontal lobe. The postcentral is in the parietal lobe. Precentral, this is a place where neurons that control the movements, motor control, this is resides here. They're also called upper motor neurons in the precentral gyrus because there's a lower motor neuron, which is in the spinal cord. And considering that that dynamic is an organization of the uh, cerebral cortex, for skeletal contraction or movement of muscles, what happens is that the initial order starts up here in the cerebral cortex by the upper motor neuron. That connects to a second neuron in the spinal cord called lower motor neuron. And that second neuron connects to the muscle. That's the reason of this term, upper motor neuron. In the post central, located in the parietal lobe, is called the somatosensory cortex because this is a the place, these are the neurons that Get all the sensations, all the input from the sensations, from the skin, from the organs, everything that we feel or or come to the brain as a sensation. Somatosensory cortex. And in the temporal, occipital, and insula. These are the main functions. Temporal lobe related with auditory centers, hearing. Occipital lobe, vision, coordination of eye movements. And in the insula, which is a hidden lobe, we don't see it from the outside of the brain unless we retract the temporal and the frontal and parietal lobe. This area of the cortex encodes for memory and integration of sensory information with visceral responses it also is a place of uh, input some of the senses like olfaction taste audition and even pain information This table summarizes all these uh, few slides in terms of functions, main function of each of the lobes. As we see, the frontal lobe mainly uh, related with voluntary motor control, the precentral gyrus, but also related with higher intellectual processes like concentration, planning, decision-making, all that in the frontal lobe. Parietal, somat- somatostatic interpretation. This is where all the sensations arrive, from the skin, from the organs. Temporal, auditory sensations. Some memory, storage. Occipital, related with vision and integration of movements for focusing the objects, movement of the eyes. And the insula, sensory Related with pain, visceral integration, and some about the memory. Different studies of MRI, CT scans—they show us the brain, and we can even see and differentiate brain—I mean gray matter from white matter—and. Uh, It is important the knowledge of the anatomy because then later we are able to say in a section like this if things that we see belong to the frontal lobe, temporal lobe, parietal lobe. And according to that, if we correlate with the physiology, we can even predict what the consequences will be. If we have, for instance, images like this one in a section that is showing us this white area, which is a mass in that particular area, which is part of the temporal lobe, we may think that the temporal lobe functions may be affected. And that's the way that uh, physiology is correlated with anatomy in the different imaging studies. Some other imaging studies are uh, focused with the functions of these lobes like dynamic functional studies like this. They inject some substance with radioactive isotopes sometimes that labels and stains some areas of the brain during some moments. And uh, in psychiatry, neuropsychiatry, they use this a lot, like for research purposes. If someone is having uh, some type of thoughts or changes in the mood, they actually do this and the people experience that particular sensation and see what part of the brain gets highlighted during that moment. And in that way, for instance here, uh, language area in this image, this language area is active when uh, the baby hears a story. If the emotions are raised on some part of the insula, may be highlighted so in that way we can understand some other functions of the brain with this dynamic or functional studies and uh, an important uh, procedure or test is called the electroencephalogram which deals with the electrical activity of the brain all this electrical activity that we studied in terms of action potentials, graded potentials, everything is picked up and received by this uh, device uh, or study called electroencephalogram. The details of this study is, um, while summarizing, what we do is put some electrodes on the scalp and uh, those sensors will pick up electricity action potentials. But we cannot detect one action potential, we just detect all the electrical activity of all the neurons in different parts of your brain. But still, we can describe certain patterns in the electroencephalogram and they are described here as alpha waves, beta waves, theta waves and delta waves. We can see all these lines that look like very disorganized, and we wonder how can we tell if it's an alpha, beta, theta, delta, there's no specific shape that we can tell. Well, what we do is actually measure the frequency at which they happen. And uh, the alpha waves, 10 to 12 cycles per second. We count like up and down, up and down like a cycle. Beta waves, 13 to 25. It's more frequent theta, 5 to 8, and delta, 1 to 5. And you have the different circumstances at which we can see these, uh, these waves. The ones that are, are seen better and they are most described are the alpha and beta waves. The alpha waves, they show when someone is awake, for instance, but relaxed. They are produced mostly in the parietal lobe, occipital lobe. And the beta waves are related with mental activity and visual stimulation. And they come mostly from the frontal lobe. And that's where most of the higher mental activity that we have, thought processes, calculations, planning, decision-making, all these happens in the frontal lobe. So, in the lab, this Thursday, we're gonna work with electroencephalogram. We have uh, four computers, I think. They have this device. Uh, called BioPack, which actually picks up electricity from the brain, and uh, it's a simplified electroencephalogram. It's not with clinical purposes, it's for study purposes, and uh, we're gonna see actually our brain waves. We can, we're gonna put two electrodes, which can be placed in both sides of the ho- forehead, or one in the forehead and one behind the ear. Uh, you will read that in the guide or the um, lab report, which is posted. And uh, we're gonna record that and see that on the screens and uh, make some calculations and uh, experiments about what happens if someone uh, close uh, the eyes and open the eyes and how the waves will change. It was supposed to show more better waves, visual stimulation. But if you are good at relaxation, then you can relax and we can take your EEG and see some alpha waves, show. Now, uh, some people are hard to relax. They're very stressed, baseline stress. And uh, we are not able to see much alpha waves. But some of the people are really uh, easy to relax and they just sit and they can think about something pleasant and they can relax. But it depends on every person. So you can try different people in your in your group and this won't take long, it takes like 40, probably 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And if you want to do it in all your members of the group, it's, it's okay, it's good to compare. But these are for the alpha and beta waves. The theta and delta waves are not commonly seen routinely even though the software will try to isolate your, your tracing into some delta and theta for educational purposes. But don't think that if you see the theta waves in you, that means that you have some type of brain damage or some thing that is not uh, frequent. Uh, Most important to emphasize are the alpha and beta waves. Electroencephalogram is used in um, what we call sleep studies. Sleep studies are very important to um, detect things like sleep apnea, for instance, which is a problem of uh, mostly obstruction of the airways and poor oxygenation of the the blood, bringing the sort of symptoms. During sleep, we can connect, hook up the personal electroencephalogram device, and we can measure different patterns. The main patterns are called the REM sleep and the non-REM sleep. How this works, the REM stands for rapid eye movements, it seems like during this part, there are also some special electrodes that are placed around the eyes to detect the rapid eye movement. Um, during this stage, apparently, there are more theta waves supposed to happen. And um, that's when the dreams are happening, or you know, the movement of the eyes. And in the sleep studies, they see that this rapid eye movement, they, they, they happen very quick, in a brief period of time. And sometimes people experience dreams and they tell you a whole story. Story that takes like five or ten minutes to tell. And you say, how can you experience that in so brief period of time? And it seems like something old at the mental level that, that occurs at that at that level. And a non REM sleep is some parts of the moments of sleep where There's no movement of the eyes, but the EEG can also show some slow waves, slow waves during these stages, especially delta waves. Well, the sleep studies they make, they connect the electrodes for electroencephalogram, rapid eye movements for. Detection of the oxygen levels of your blood and carbon dioxide, and they make a very complex curves and correlation. According to that, they can tell you, oh, you have this, you have that, or you're not breathing properly, you're not oxygenating your blood properly, and so. But if we see how the sleep goes, this table shows very, very well what happens and how we sleep. Um, assuming that we sleep eight hours, this is the table based on eight hours of sleep. Which is the standard according to some people, and it's actually not a standard standard. Some people may sleep six hours and it's fine. Some people sleep 10 hours it's still sick after waking. But if assuming a standard time of eight hours of sleep, during the first hour, what happens is you're from being awake, and you fall asleep and there are four stages of sleep that goes in like in depth. Depth in terms of what? Depth in terms of if you go to stage two, three and four, along that time, if you get into stage two and three, that's usually when your body temperature gets lower. And that's typically when you fall asleep, like taking a nap and it gets it turns to a long nap and you start getting cold. And someone comes to put a blanket on you and you keep sleeping. But it's, you feel cold because your body, your body temperature is getting lower. You get into deep sleep. Well, stage four is when your vital functions will get low, lower, like heart rate gets 55, 60 sometimes. Your blood pressure gets lower. You're sleeping, better, but deep sleep. It's hard to wake you up. Hard to wake you up. Babies are really good at this. Do you try to wake up a baby? They have a very deep sleep, but not us. We just any noise and we wake up. But then what happens us in the four hour is that uh, we go back. We go back to initial stages, and that's when we start with REM sleep, which is uh, look at that five minutes, just five minutes of REM sleep. and then you go back to stage one, two and three and four again. And then in the second hour, again, you have another REM sleep, sometimes at 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And in that way, along the night and along the eight hours of sleep. But notice that more more hours that you sleep, your sleep is not so deep. And when the sleep is deep, this is when you are resting. That's what we call non-REM is resting sleep. This is the reason why on Sunday mornings, if you try to sleep like 12 hours, you're actually not resting. After the hour number eight, you're not, re- you're not resting. You're just laying on bed. And sometimes you just laying on bed and you still hear the noise around you and you think you're sleeping, you're relaxed. Probably your sleep is very superficial. But there's a point that your body starts aching and you have to stand up. Um, but it's important that, during the night, we should get enough amount of REM sleep, like three or four cycles of REM sleep at least. Because otherwise, it seems like you're not getting not enough sleep you, you don't feel well rested at the end of your hours of sleep. Now during REM sleep, some brain regions seems to be more active. And that's what explains all the dreaming thing during that stage. And the limbic system, especially, is very active during that time. The breathing, heart rate, tendency regular, you cannot tell is lower or higher or faster. Um, it changes. It changes because there are connections with the limbic system. You're experiencing things in your dreams, and uh, that may change your vital functions during that time. And it's important for memory because it helps to consolidate memories. There are some memories called non-declarative, which are things that we remember or we experience, but they are not well apprehended by by our brain. But many things happen around us during the day, and everything is recorded here. When we get into sleep and REM sleep, what we do is rewind and consolidate some of those memories. Some others are purged and eliminated from your, from your brain. So REM sleep is important in all that aspect. It helps actually to complete the cycle of resting, dreaming, purging memories, consolidating memories. And during non-REM sleep, that's when we actually resting The blood flow is decreased to the brain. The metabolism gets lower. And it seems that this sleep, non-REM, helps to the repair of damage done to the cells during the day, the neurons actually rest. And they clean up of free radicals and uh, neuroplasticity mechanisms are consolidated memory consolidation of declarative memories, which are the memories that we can expressly organize in a sequence of thoughts or order, like when we study. Some people like to study and go to sleep right away. Some people like to sleep and then study the next morning. There are some studies that show that it's better to study and then go to sleep right away. You finish your study, boom, to bed, sleep. Don't spend more time, because at that point, it seems like you are consolidating all these declarative memories, if you have a good sleep, but if you don't sleep, if you sleep only two hours, and you study late until 4 or 5 in the morning, and your exam is at 8, you probably have all those ideas in your brain floating, and you're not able to catch them very well for the time of the exam. But there are more factors. Some people are better at this than others, and for others, it doesn't make a difference. But what is actually true is that sleep, it's important. It is really important, especially when we are studying, and um, to consolidate the memories. Getting deep into the brain, there's a region called basal nuclei. Basal nuclei, remember nuclei, is for groups of neurons. If there are bodies of neurons there, well, that's gray matter. And this basal nuclei is composed by nuclei called coated nucleus, lentiform nucleus, that has two parts, the putamen and the globus pallidus. There's another nucleus called subthalamic nucleus. All of them are depicted in this picture. We have the globus pallidus the putamin sub- thalamic nucleus, and a substantia negra of the midbrain is also included in this group because it is interconnected with it. We mentioned that the substantia negra is um, affected in Parkinson's disease in the previous slides, but now the substantia negra of the midbrain is connected to this other nuclei called basal nuclei, because there are important functions for this, it establishes a circuit, which is shown here, that even involves a cortex, the cerebral cortex. This is a cerebral cortex. And we can see many arrows here connected to each other. How this actually happens, let's say, let's start here in this first arrow that comes from the cortex. Imagine that you have an order starting here in the cerebral cortex. Like, move the muscle of my legs. That will not go straight to your spinal cord. It first go and connect to a neuron in the basal nuclei, the coded imputamin. And then what happens from here? It goes down and connects to the substantia nigra in the midbrain. And the substantia negra will send it back to the coded imputamine. And then the cordial putamen will send it to the globus pallidus. And then the globus pallidus will receive input from the subthalamic nucleus. Which may be a loop like coming back and forth. From here it will connect to the thalamus. And the thalamus will send this back to the cortex. Why all this sequence? Because now the order will come down. And it will have components that, that will say, we'll say, well, you wanted to move your legs because there was a music and what you actually want to do is dance. And what type of music is that? Or it's a slow dance. So you have to move this muscle and not that muscle. You have to move it slow, not quick. All that process happens here in the basal nucleus. Or you want to make a slow motion movement and all that is regulated by all this motor circuit there. And that's why, imagine that one of these components is failing, like the substantia nigra in uh, Parkinson's, or well, that loop is broken. You want to move your hand to reach a cup, and your hand will go like this. You cannot grab it. You cannot control that very well. So that's the importance of the basal nuclei as part of this motor circuit that involves the cerebral cortex and all the movements that we make. questions to this point. In the study of the function of the brain, we um, use this term called lateralization, which stands for the distribution of the pathways and neurons from the cerebral cortex down the spinal cord and to the peripheral nervous system. And uh, And it's about the crossing over that sometimes we see in some pathways. Like each side of the precentral gyrus, in terms of motor function, control the movements in the contralateral side. Meaning that if I have a problem in this arm, in my left arm, the problem may be from a damage on my neurons in the cerebral cortex in the right hemisphere. That is called lateralization. And swell for the sensations. Sensations that are from the left arm will come to my right cerebral hemisphere in the post-central gyrus this time. And now sometimes we think, uh, okay, so that means that the both hemispheres work separately? No, because you can move both, both, he- both upper limbs and do this. And when you're doing this, both hemispheres are working together. And even better, if you want to do the same movement with both upper limbs, they have to be interconnected. And that's what the corpus callosum is, what is, is, is present there, connecting both hemispheres. Sometimes we misunderstood this term. When we say lateralization, we talk about right brain and left brain. Well, that's a term for psychology. It's not based on the anatomy of the brain. Some people will say, well, you yeah, know, some, some uh, theories and books talk about the right brain or the left brain. And some predominate some functions, and other functions predominate in the other side. Um, but there's not a an anatomical correlation for this. As we see here, this description of right hemisphere uh, seems to perform better for some functions like this, visual-spatial tasks, recognition of faces, uh, raging blocks, reading maps, while the left hemisphere is more related with language, speech, writing calculations. For the language, there is anatomical correlation, but to a certain degree, and not 100% and also we see differences in people that have left dominant and right dominant functions like people that are left-handed or right-handed seems to have this not switched over but both hemispheres focusing in the same in the same function for language there are two areas that control the language in different ways and these areas, they have a specific names. One of them is called the Broca's area. And the other one is called the Vernix area. Any problem related with speech, with language, is called a fascia. The Broca's area and the Vernix area are related to each other in this way. The Broca's area, it is in the frontal Lobe, frontal gyrus as we see in this diagram, Broca's area, right next to the motor cortex or precentral gyrus. This area controls motor aspects of speech, like how I move my tongue, my lips to make the sounds, or even my larynx, the vocal cords, the production of the sound, the speech. And the vernix area, which is located in the temporal lobe, controls understanding of words. And the study of aphasia has led us to understand these functions. Like, it's common people with stroke, which is a lack of circulation in the brain, the brain, usually. In those areas, or the frontal lobe, precentral gyrus, and the Broca's area is usually affected. in someone with stroke, and you come and try to talk or speak to someone with stroke, and sometimes they have aphasia, Broca's aphasia. They try to speak, but then they're not able to, but they can make the sound, but you cannot. They cannot articulate the words, although they understand what you're saying. They are able to understand what you're saying, but they are not able to speak to articulate the speech. That is called Broca's aphasia. Um, and we can study this. I mean, the patient with stroke, we see that it can it's not able to speak, and we can ask them to write the words in the paper with some of the other limb, and we can get to know that the person is understanding, but is not able to speak, articulate the words. This, this is good prognosis. Some people are able to recover the aphasia in some way, and you see people with, uh, stroke that has a stroke that, that have some impairment of the speech afterwards, that recover because of the therapy. The Vernix area is different because if someone has a problem with the Vernix area, but these people would not understand the words that you say. This is more severe because it's like all of a sudden you are in a foreign country, When they speak a foreign language, you can understand the word that they're saying. It's exactly the same sensation. And even in your brain, you don't have the tools to speak in that language. So you see people that they don't speak. They are not able to speak. But it's not because they cannot articulate the words, it's because they don't understand what you're saying. They They don't understand the language that we're speaking. And therefore, they cannot articulate. But the problem is in the vernix area. So these two areas are related, as I said, because in order to speak, we need to understand first and know the language and articulate the words in, in the language. And it's related with hearing um, very much. And that's why it's in the temporal loop. Questions come to this point.